Jeroboam reigns over Israel in the north, and his attempt at innovation turns opportunity into calamity. On The Bible Brief. Pick up your Bible and read along with us today. Learning happens better with a Bible in your hand. Earthquakes ensure that life is never the same. Before the earthquake, you go about your business, visiting the same places, getting your groceries at the same location, taking the same routes. But after the earthquake, life changes in dramatic ways. The grocery store is destroyed, so you find a new place for food. The roads are in shambles, so new routes are needed. Your livelihood is in question, because of all the life disruption. The earthquake has changed your life, and it will probably never be the same again. This is probably what it felt like to the population of the tribes of Israel during this earth-shaking development of the kingdom's division. They knew that life would never be the same. Old alliances had faltered. Old routes were now through enemy territory. Old modes of life were now simply that, old. The people were now under a new way of life, with new rules, new boundaries, and new kings. The era of the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon had given way to the era of division. An era with the Kingdom of Israel in the north, and the Kingdom of Judah in the south. Brother kingdoms who would battle it out for supremacy. Now when recovering from an earthquake, there's something that naturally happens in a community. They try to build back in a way similar to the old way things had been. There's an attempt to recreate life the way that it used to be, to take what existed in memory and renew the place that they had come to love. Remake the home that had been lost. It's a natural desire, and it's a desire that the new king of the north would attempt to stifle. Jeroboam wanted a clean break from their hostile neighbors to the south. The house of David no longer ruled over the ten northern tribes of Israel. No. Now it was the house of Jeroboam, the beginning of a hopeful new dynasty. And with this new beginning, Jeroboam had to find a way to create a new way of life in place of the old. Instead of recreating the past, he wanted to drive forward into the future. A future without that kingdom of Judah in the south. This required some innovative thinking. He had to find a way to break up a nation that had been glued together by God himself. A nation of twelve tribes that had come from a single man. A nation with a single set of laws delivered by God himself through the prophet Moses. These people had a thousand years of shared history, with a shared temple for the holy sacrifices to God. Perhaps most of all, these people were chosen by a single God, Yahweh, the one and only master of all things. How could Jeroboam keep his new kingship intact in the midst of all this shared cultural and religious identity? Well, he'd take a page out of that shared history. He'd rip it out, and he'd use it as a basis for a new history and a new trajectory. He'd create progress through regressing to one of the worst moments in all of Israel's history. He'd go all the way back to the foot of Mount Sinai when Aaron, 
the brother of Moses, led the nation into a great sin. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places, and appointed priests from among all the people, who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast in the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah in the seventh month. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. This promising leader Jeroboam commits immediate and awful violations of God's law that he'd given the nation. He sets up his own golden calf gods. He sets up his own priesthood, and he sets up his own religious feast. Not only that, but he brazenly quotes Aaron from the Exodus account and says this about the golden calves. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. With Aaron's words, he leads the ten northern tribes into a regression to the pagan sin from the wilderness generation. Jeroboam suddenly and foolishly burns the cultural good of Israel and only brings back the haunting past of rebellion. His innovative journey forward is nothing less than a perversion of the law that God gave the nation. So much so that it's as if he set aside the law completely to make his own way. Jeroboam doesn't just turn his back on all the positive history of united Israel. He also tragically turns his back on the God of Israel. Now, the priests from the tribe of Levi see what's happening around them in the north, and they know that nothing good will come of it. Jeroboam has rejected the true priesthood in favor of false priests, and they know that their place will be with the kingdom of Judah to the south. So soon after Jeroboam began making idols, the Levites head south and defect to Judah. The kingdom of Judah is strengthened due to having the temple, the true priesthood, and the Davidic line of kings ruling over them. It appears for now, legitimacy lies in the south, and apostasy lies in the north. God doesn't simply leave Jeroboam to his own devices, however, as he soon sends a prophet to confront this king on behalf of Yahweh. He sends the prophet to the place of one of the golden calves, where unlawful sacrifices are being made on the altars to false gods. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 13. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, 
and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of Yahweh your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. In no uncertain terms, God expresses his displeasure with Jeroboam and these unlawful altars. He says that he will raise up a man in David's line, a king over Judah named Josiah, who will kill all the false priests, making sacrifices on the false altars. Further, as if to confirm that the word of the prophet is true, God causes Jeroboam's hand to shrivel up when he tries to seize the prophet. Yahweh had given this king of the north a chance at a great dynasty like David's. But David's dynasty would come and defeat these places of false worship set up by this rebellious king. Not only that, but God announces through another prophet that Jeroboam's dynasty won't even last to that point. On behalf of God, the prophet communicates this to Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 14. Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourselves other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. God announces a severe judgment upon Jeroboam for his wicked actions. He says that Jeroboam has not lived like David did. And not only that, but he's lived in a more evil way than any who were before him. God's judgment is this. Jeroboam's dynasty will be cut off. All his male family members will die, and none will get a proper burial. They will all die in dishonor for the dishonor that Jeroboam has shown to the Lord who made him king. Jeroboam's dynasty is going nowhere, and soon his power will be silenced by his nemesis kingdom to the south. Rehoboam's son, Abijah, ascends to the throne and goes to war with Jeroboam. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 15. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him, with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zemariam, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant? Yet Jeroboam the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his lord. 
And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David? Because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made you for gods? Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods. But as for us, Yahweh is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron, and Levites for their service. For we keep charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Abijah draws up 400,000 men of Judah against 800,000 from Jeroboam and Israel. The odds are against Abijah, but he courageously depends upon the Lord and the faithfulness of the kingdom of Judah to Yahweh. He says that Israel is foolish to come against Judah, because with Judah is the true priesthood, the true promises, and the true law. He appeals to their knowledge of their shared culture and their shared God. And he finally says, Do not fight against Yahweh, for you cannot succeed. Abijah attempts to stop the battle before it starts, to potentially rescue the unity of the nation that they once had. In the meantime, Jeroboam has other plans. He sends a secret force behind the army of Judah to ambush them so that they'll have to fight at the battle line and at their rear flank. You can imagine Jeroboam tasting victory before the battle has even started. He has more men and a superior position. Judah might as well surrender, were it not for Judah's God. We read this, starting in verse 13. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of and behind them. And they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout, and when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them with great force, so that there fell slain of Israel, 500,000 chosen men. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed, because they relied upon Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. The reign of Jeroboam over the northern ten tribes of Israel comes to a swift end. The prophets have announced the doom of his dynasty. The king of Judah has defeated the majority of his army, and God himself strikes down Jeroboam. Sometimes progress isn't progress at all. Sometimes innovation is an endeavor of folly. Sometimes the right place to look for the future is in the faithful past. Jeroboam had innovated in folly, and he fell like other pagan kings before him. Where he should have walked is in the ancient paths, paths hewn by faithful men in tumultuous times, paths honored by Yahweh himself, paths that memory should have rebuilt after the earthquake. 
Join us next time as we look back before we move forward. We know what's happened in the northern kingdom of Israel, but what about Judah in the south? Are they walking the ancient paths? The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023